Welcome to Imaginarium, an alternate history of art, a podcast where we delve into the most obscure parts of art history. Hello, dear listeners. I'm your host, Najah. And in this podcast, we try to shed light on less studied parts of the history of art and visual culture. In today's episode, we're going to talk about botanical illustrations and the way the study of plants and its visual representations developed. Let's discover the way it intersects with science, art, and colonialism. I mean, imperialism is just one of the usual suspects at this point, isn't it? This is less of an artistic perspective on the visual arts, However, it is still very much part of visual culture and of our understanding of science through a visual medium, as well as helping the discipline of botany and the study of plants grow and advance. The landscape is as much a source of inspiration for art as it can be the template for art itself. Gardens can be an outlet for creativity. And the shaping of natural elements has been often used in contemporary works of art and installations. I have spoken a bit more at length in episode 9 of the first season on gardens and art. However, today, as much as we will be talking a bit about the ethereal beauty of nature, Our investigation of the topic will have a more scientific and pragmatic nature to it and will not have the grand emotions that accompany the philosophies and tenets of certain movements of art when thinking about nature. So let's delve into the world of botanical illustrations and scientific illustrations of nature and how these belong in a world of learning, botany, and sometimes imperialism. The symbiotic relationship between humans and nature is one that has had a constant push and pull through the years. I love, love gardens, and the feeling of being outside within the flowers. However, I fully admit that I simply would never see myself as someone living in the middle of nowhere. I love the bustle of life around me and the options that urban life provides way too much to simply live in an isolated cottage, even though sometimes it definitely feels like I would absolutely need to do that. Thank God you can rent the cabin for a getaway weekend every now and then. I do think, though, that nature should have a much bigger part in our lives, if simply to not alienate ourselves from what makes us human, and to not get a burnout when you spend your life constantly being busy and stuck in an environment that polluted, grey and overwhelmingly visually ugly. Like, let's be honest here. A lot of urban architecture from the past decades has been neither beautiful, neither particularly well-built in the utilitarian sense either. But that is only my opinion. 
I think as a society, we deserve to have well-designed, useful, and practical habitation that are also visually pleasing. The same way I just think we deserve beautiful and practical cities made for humans and not for cars. And so, as we get into the story that links people and human, it's this one that has always been on an artistic level as well. Nature has always been an incredible source of inspiration for artists and creative people of all sorts and has been the basis of countless works of art and illustration as the main subject. Because if there is one thing that we all have in common, it is the world out there. The sky, the sun, and the nature that surrounds us. No matter how varied, it has always been out there and we have always tried to capture its essence through art, but also to define and classify the way it exists. And so, the history of botanical illustration had to do with the fact there was always a need to know and understand plants, especially way back in history when there was not a possibility to simply research things. People needed to know if the leaves that they were going to eat were edible or poisonous. After all, a wrong choice would mean death. Or at the very least, a really terrible time. And so the knowledge of plant becomes absolutely vital, on a medicinal and very practical way. Botanical illustrations, which are generally defined as being the illustrations that accompany or support a scientific text, tend to have a very practical purpose and are created with this very specific goal in mind. The art, it is still art after all, is not one that is meant to be purely decorative nor beautiful, even though I think it can be. The history of the practice of botanical illustration can be traced all the way back to the ancient Egyptians and their numerous plant-based hieroglyphs, and this marked the earliest example of the way a herbal could end up being put together. On the walls of the temple of the Third, you could find at least 275 illustrations and hieroglyphs on its walls, which are detailed and complex enough that some of these plants are still recognizable today. In roughly 70-ish BCE, with the illustration book De Materia Medica by the Greek botanist Dioscorides, and the purpose of it was indeed medicinal. He needed to be able to distinguish the plant that would help cure and solve various illnesses and ailments, as well as to avoid the ones that were going to make matters worse. This particular work of ancient botanical science endured well into the modern age, and even into the 17th century was still used as a reference point. So the correct identification of these plants was a matter of life and death actually, and thus was a very serious scientific discipline. Of course, as time went on, the purpose of the discipline broadened and expanded. 
The use of botanical illustrations was thus as much as for the state of science itself, as it was for the purpose of creative skills of drawing and painting. The medieval ages in Europe brought the revitalization of the art of botanical sciences, with all of the manuscripts that were crafted in monasteries and It is then that the art of illumination and those beautiful miniatures that decorate to those books that really flourished. It was the age of sequestered monks spending their days away at their desks, painstakingly writing and drawing beautiful, detailed books. And so the herbals of the time, on top of being a testimony of an early form of science and a record of the nature around them, were also beautiful works of art. Those illuminated manuscripts were handwritten. After all, it was before the proliferation of the printing press that were beautifully and meticulously crafted and embellished with gold or silver. On top of that, the illustrations had to be copied and recopied. And sometimes with each further copies, sometimes it would stray even more from the original illustration and visual reference because the manuscript did not always have the original plant as a visual reference. Which, let's be honest, is slightly unhelpful and explains a lot of the weird plants and animals that pepper Western European medieval almanacs. This reminds me a bit of the 19th century Orientalist paintings of faraway lands that were only based on travelogues and thus were once or twice removed from the original landscape and country, creating thus an amalgam of reality filling the blanks with some biased assumptions and ingrained prejudices. This is also how I think we got the weirdest drawings of exotic animals during the medieval era, as people were hearing about elephants and lions and giraffes, as the monks were hearing those vague second-hand descriptions. Well, they were trying their best, is all we can say about this. (laughs) The nature of these herbals was very scientific, but also it is with this medieval understanding of science, which blends science and facts, as well as mysticism. For them, magic and alchemy were simply another facet of science. And this is why you would often see plants in those herbals that were known to be magical and have special properties such as the mandrak root, which is a real plant. However, the folklore around it is full of mysticism. This plant is depicted as having a human body, and when pulled out of the ground, would scream and kill anyone who heard it. To the medieval people, there was no distinction between magic and science, because it was one and the same. They were simply mirror images of the way the world worked, and so this separation between the two would have been meaningless to them. And I can't help myself but mention the Voynet manuscript. Dated to roughly the early 15th century, 
It is a fine example of the way botanical sciences and species, even ones that we cannot seem to decrypt nor understand, are interwoven with the world of art. This particular manuscript is one that is absolutely fascinating, as it is one of the historical mysteries that is still unsolved. Because no matter how many people have tried to understand its meaning, no one has been able to pinpoint what exactly the significance of it is. It looks, at first sight, like a typical medieval manuscript, and yet none of it made sense. I do love that we still have some mysteries left to try and decipher especially when sometimes it feels like we have discovered and know everything. But it's good to remember every now and then that we haven't. The particular thing about the botanical illustration of this manuscript is that they represent plant species that seem to not exist in our material world. The plants and flowers drawn do not exist on Earth and have never been seen before as far as we know. Of course it could be simply an invention or a prank. However, when you think about the price of paper and that era, this is a prank that was very costly to create. So this manuscript raises more questions than it answers. And the language in which it is written is also not known in Earth, so it's very mysterious. But the artistic style in which those botanical illustrations were drawn are very much in line with the style of the early 15th century. When you look at the overall picture of this form of art, I think the history of botanical and natural illustrations can be separated into distinct historical periods and artistic styles as well before the advent of printing, and after its inception. The year that printing is invented is usually dated to 1450 by Gutenberg. However, it is mostly understood that there are some printing technologies that predate it. After all, the year of 1450 is mostly a reference point for when printing became an important breakthrough in Western culture, signaling the beginning of a more accessible mode of communication in Europe. And of course, this does discount the invention of printing in China in the 7th century during the Tang Dynasty, and which later inspired the German printing press. However, this is not the subject for today, but I just wanted to put this out there. But books, after all, are way easier to produce and distribute when you do not have to manually write each and every one of them, after all. And so the 15th and 16th century really presents a shift when it comes to the way botanical illustrations are treated. After all, it is also the era of the Renaissance, where the Florentine artistic scene is booming and is going to influence so much of European art in the subsequent years.
the stylistic changes during that era from the Middle Ages are getting a bit more stark, as it goes from more stylistic choices to a more realistic art style that was more desirous to replicate and imitate the reality in front of them. Accuracy and realism became so much more important, which was extremely helpful in terms of furthering the science and the correct identification of plants and flora. During the Islamic Golden Age from roughly the 8th to the 13th century, it was an age where the Muslim scholars had a great thirst for knowledge of all kinds and for the science of botany. As a tool to support the development of natural sciences, but also for medicine and cuisine, of course. The illustrations that were backing those scientific texts were not only a visual aid to teach and learn, but the stylistic choices that were made during this era would continue to influence Islamic art until today. The miniatures and illustrations are beautifully made and complex and depict in detail not only the plants, but also their many uses across the fields. The sciences in all their forms are a huge part of the medieval landscape in the Islamic world, from mathematics, languages, astronomy, as well as the arts, from music, miniatures, and architectures. Translating and transcribing scientific and philosophical documents from other languages and cultures into Arabic was one of the ways to gain various knowledge from across the world. So there is a translation from the Materia de Medica of Diostrides that we talked about earlier from the 13th century in Iraq, written in Arabic with those beautiful watercolors illustrations that accompany the translated text. And so there is a clear link between all of these botanical illustrations across not only space and cultures, but chronologically. What is usually called the Golden Age of Exploration is those years following the discovery by the rest of the world of the American continent. People were trapsing around the world, bringing back seeds and plants, samples, to analyze and grow. The field of botany and natural sciences was one that was thriving during those years. The people who cared about this subject were true enthusiasts that were ready to go out in the world, into unexplored and uncharted lands and bring back specimens of plants and flowers, as well as illustrate them. This is what made it so that the art of botanical illustrations became such a fashionable one suddenly, where the goal was not only utilitarian, but also aesthetic. Botanical imperialism is a concept that must not be familiar to most, and yet it is, of course, one of the foundations of the discipline. And the way it grows in those years following the discovery of the American continent by the Europeans during the 16th century and onwards. What I mean by that is that 
discovery that sent ten of what? Well, we can magnanimously call them explorers. Or maybe colonial leeches? <laughs> this is maybe too mean, but I do think we should be meaner to them. And anyway, they're all long dead by now. Even if those people were not personally terrible people, the whole system of the imperial machine made that personal motive totally redundant. Because the imperialist system is what has been so harmful for so long. And so these quote-unquote explorers, adventurers and botanists who are going around the world are simply part of the structure. There was a thirst for knowledge. However, they were operating under an imperialist system within the empire. And this is where I want to get at. That it doesn't really matter what their intentions were. The only reason they were able to go through to see these exotic countries and faraway places for them was within a colonial project. There is no denying that science has often been used in support of imperialism and colonialism. After all, eugenics is the most racist form of sciences and we all know it that it has no real basis in concrete reality and has been discredited time and times again. And yet these theories were based on facts and figures that were interpreted through racist lens. And so, this is what I also mean by the fact that true objectivity does not exist. Because even if facts and figures are unbiased, they will always be interpreted through our own biases and prejudices. And we all have them. And we all have to work hard to unlearn the harmful ones. Eugenics were a significant part of the rise of fascism during the late 19th century and early 20th century. As science is often a tool to justify racism, colonialism and spread the idea of a superior white race and the need to civilize and conquer certain countries and people. And so it was rationalized and logical, quote-unquote, of course, justification of imperialism, which is such a slippery slope. This era, so the golden age of exploration, it's the one that defines and constructs the figure of the courageous explorer and adventurer, an archetype that can be incredibly harmful, but that continued to be extremely popular in the late 19th century and the early 20th century, at the height of the empire, and that continues to exist in current media, even if some are unaware of its ramification. After all, it is a white savior trope, as well as smoothing over the figure of the colonizer. I mean, that is what Indiana Jones is inspired from. And while yes, I guess it can still be enjoyed as just the silly action flit that it is, there is no denying that it is a slightly problematic archetype. After all, he goes to indigenous and non-Western countries which are depicted mostly as a monolith and backdrop for the adventure of the white explorer, never figuring front and center in their own stories. 
and so this figure of the scholar and the dashing explorer becomes the lens through which the colonial project is often romanticized. It becomes an adventure, a dangerous journey, at the end of which knowledge and treasure is accrued, no matter how those treasured and artifacts are stolen. And so the idea that we have of exploration is unfortunate, because it is so often based on empire. Even though they were working to further science in the name of knowledge and all of that good stuff, their true objective was to find plants and categorize them. However, they had also the goal to find plants that were going to be economically profitable to the empire, to then be able to exploit and make money out of. The intersection between sciences art and imperialism is where those botanical illustrations from those expeditions into the wild belong. There tends to be a desire to make art and sciences as opposite sides of a debate and put them at complete odds, as if there is no common grounds between the two. However, I do not believe this. I think both art and sciences are simply two sides of the same coin, if you'll let me get away with the expression. However, it is true. They are simply two different ways of understanding and making sense of the world. And there is art, emotions, and inspiration in the methods of science. And there is skill, logic, reason, and discipline when it comes to creating art. And both of these areas want to look at the world around them and try to make sense of what we have. Hence the world of botany and herbology is an important part of the way we understand the world around us, both through the lens of science and art. It is a vetted interest for several people. It is a field that has several practical uses and where people needed to know the names and properties of certain plants, especially the ones with medicinal uses and useful properties. And a lot of people were experts in the domain, even if they were not necessarily professionals. A lot of these botanists and scientists, on top of having extensive scientific knowledge and abilities, had amazing artistic skills because art and illustration was not a distant discipline from their work in science, but actually was an integral part of their scientific research, especially from the 18th century and onwards when the process of trying to document and classify plants developed in a much more technical way. But illustration, despite its obvious shortcomings, after all, an illustration can only go so far when it comes to representing accurately the reality of the specimen that is being studied. However, with a stilled hand, there is a lot that the botanist could communicate and document about what they were encountering. While women were often and heavily encouraged to help with plants and tend to the gardens and the growing of their own vegetables and food, part of the work they were expected to be doing 
women were a significant part of the quote-unquote gardening community throughout the ages. There was still, though, very much a door closed to them when it came to exercising in a professional manner as a botanical scientist or a landscape designer or a professional working illustrator. Those fields of studies and options were still kind of close to women until fairly recently. And by this, I mean the late 19th century. After all, doing it as a hobby and an amateur versus doing it within the confines of a qualified profession is very different in the eyes of society, no matter if the talent and skills are equivalent. This is like the example of the male chef versus the woman home cook or the fashion designer and the seamstress, where the standards are very much unbalanced and biased. Beatrix Potter's work in botanical illustration, for one is one artist whom I have already talked about a bit in season two of this podcast, but mostly in terms of her work for children's book illustrations. And now we're going to turn around and dive into the part of her body of work that engages with botanical illustrations and sciences. She was an avid enthusiast of drawing directly from nature, and that is how she learned and developed her craft, as well as got her inspiration from her children's picture books. She had a genuine enthusiast specifically from the study of mushrooms. I know that strictly speaking, mushrooms are not plants. They are a third thing. Scarier than anything we could try and come up with. Insert that. Uh, Absolutely terrifying post on Tumblr about how you cannot kill mushrooms in any way that matters. And how decay exists as an extant form of life. Look, just mushrooms are just terrifying things. That's... There's my stance on the subject. <laughs> However, Beatrice Potter did not share my opinion as she delved into the studies and meticulous illustrations of various mushroom species. And yet, the fields of botany and plant studies were ones that so many people had a vested interest in to the point of being expert in the subject. After all, there were practical and essential use to this knowledge. The intrinsic history of nature within human history and the way this story was represented through art and visual culture. I am not a scientist. I am an art historian as well as an archivist. So it is through this lens that I'm approaching this subject to see how the art of botanical sciences say about our history and our understanding of the world around us, the stylistic choices in botanical illustrations, often done in pencil or in watercolor, with a desire to transcribe the paper as close to reality as possible, because the aesthetic for so long was secondary to their practical purpose. Carl Friedrich Philipp von Marsches, 
who lived from 1794 until 1838, was a German botanist and artist, and is especially well known from his palm illustrations. He went on an expedition to Brazil for King Maximilian I of Bavaria, and so from 1817 to 1820, along with his zoologist. Their goal was not only to explore and research the natural history, but also the native tribes of the area. During their journey of 2,000 kilometers, he categorized in details a huge quantity of the palms and plants that are found in Brazil, an extensive work on which the modern delineation and classification of palms is still based upon. And so the work of Carl von Marsh's is extremely important when it comes to botany and natural sciences. However, once again, art and sciences are at the intersection of imperialism during the ages of empires. And while the headways of the knowledge of nature and science are important, there is still something a bit off about trying to investigate the indigenous people of the area in the same way and taking advantage of them. However, the art that came out of these four years of expedition is a lush overview and a comprehensive analysis of the species of palms. His more than 240 illustrations are extremely detailed and instructive, on top of being extremely beautiful. I hope that during the course of this podcast, I have underlined the way art and imperialism do work hand in hand, not only in simple and direct propaganda, but also in the insidious ways it infiltrates the world of art and the depiction of various subjects and distorting them through the eye of the empire. The way culture, the global interconnected culture, is shaped has the almost all-encompassing influence of empire the way we continue to understand the world, even in our modern era, is still very much determined by these notions of empire. This is getting out of the subject of the earth, but it is possible to notice in the vocabulary in how we talk about space exploration and space conquest, that the study of space is being understood within the lens of its imperialism. It is a perception that has absolutely permeated the way we construct the world, and it is absolutely embedded within the system, and will unfortunately take a bit more than a few readings of post-colonial master theorists to untangle and resolve, but I do choose to believe and have hope that it will get better. Pierre-Joseph Redouté was a French artist born in 1759 and who died in 1840, who exists through the period of the late 18th century and into the early 19th century in France, and whose illustrations of flowers and plants have, in my opinion, hugely influenced the idea of botanical illustrations during those years. 
he was nicknamed the Raphael of flowers. Not only, of course, because of his enormous artistic talent, but his extreme popularity within the fashionable world of Paris. He worked primarily in watercolor to add a sort of transparency and delicacy to his art. Even if his work was mostly artistic and had a more decorative purpose, he was more of an artist than a scientist. However, his illustrations were tender beauty and very precise in their realism and authenticity. Redouté and his art were part of an extremely tumultuous and intense historical period in France. From the absolute monarchy of Louis XVI and Marie Antoinette, all the way through the terror and the reign of Napoleon. And it is a sign of the endurance in his illustrations, not only of their scientific significance, but of their aesthetic appeal, that they have been able to endure and travel through so many different eras and charge socio-political contexts, and still feel relevant and important. They represent a need that we feel to know more about our natural environment, but also to feel the beauty of that environment. A florilegia was created to also have a record of plants and flowers, but it did not need to have an extensive scientific description nor text accompanying the images. It was mostly just the illustrations, which were beautiful and often commissioned by universities and private estates. These objects that got into popularity during the 18th century and the 19th century, where it was simply of good taste to draw some flowers, even though the purpose was no more scientific. But the art of botanical illustration was increasingly in vogue. Built in 1759, the Royal Botanical Gardens at Chew is an institution that is still to this day in operation. Those gardens are situated on the site of a former royal estate in London, are some of the most well-known gardens in the world. With a goal of research and preservation, they were at the forefront of botanical sciences and they had plant collectors whose job was to go across the world and collect plant specimens for the Chew Gardens collection. During the 19th century, it broadened its activity to include a more instructional and recreational aspect to it by opening the Chew Gardens to the public, but also decided to further their work into the British colonial project. The history of the botanical gardens at Chew is very entangled with the story of British imperialism. It is almost impossible to separate the two. And the way the knowledge and collections that are currently present at the Chew Gardens comes from imperialist expeditions, and it was a way to continue to profit from British colonies. However, and I will give them that, they are very much aware and mindful of that history and not trying to sweep it up under the rug and pretend it never happened actually.
but fully cognizant of the brutal and violent consequences that colonialism can have. Even if true something as lovely and seemingly benign as the study of plants and botany. To be honest, anything that has royal in its title is simply part of the way the empire has colonized and pillaged across the world. And I will say that I do not know the best way to recover from such a history. But acknowledging it and trying to change the practices to be more inclusive and respectful is always a good start in my opinion and working toward correcting the egregious injustices that have been made back then. And so it is an institution that is at the cornerstone of botanical sciences illustrations and that is very much trying to correct the way it was shaped through imperialism. Of course, there is so much on this subject that I haven't touched yet. But the need to investigate and detail what surrounds us is absolutely universal. Botanical illustrations exist as a physical representation, not only of the pursuit of knowledge and science, but of beauty and artistry and the way those two can not only cohabit and coexist, but complement and inform each other. There are witnesses of our history in ways that are maybe unexpected, and yet their presence, as ubiquitous as it is, is a permanent reminder that beauty and violence are always intertwined. On this, my darling listeners, Thank you for listening to this new episode of Imaginarium. I hope it was fun and we'll meet again next month for a new episode and a new deep dive into another lesser known topic of art history and visual culture. If you want to support this podcast, you can do so on Patreon at patreon.com slash I want to take this opportunity to thank my patrons, Meili, Chun-Li Tepecinuyan, Sam Hurst, Natalie Sluggett, Jameson Hollybrook, Jad, Amanen, and Carter J. Tain. Thank you all for the support you give this podcast. It means the absolute world to me. Otherwise, talk about it to anyone you'll think will like it. And as the YouTubers say, like and subscribe and give us a good rating if you enjoyed it. As always, all of the relevant images will also be on our social platforms at imaginarium underscore pod, on Instagram as well as on Twitter. This podcast was written, narrated, and produced by yours truly, Neja. On this, I wish you all a very lovely day, evening, or night, and I hope to see you again very, very soon. Thank you.